Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Kari Nixon online. Kari, how are you? Hi, how are you doing today? I am great. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. So why don't you share a little bit about you and the awesome work you do, and we'll dive right in. Great. Yeah, I'm, I think before 2020, it, it would have been considered by most odd and curious work, and then it suddenly catapulted into the public relevance after COVID um, happened. So I'm a professor. Uh, I'm trained as a literature professor, but this day and age, we say everything's a text, everything is uh, capable of being analyzed, and we're essentially trained analyzers. And so my research focuses generally on public reaction to public health mandates during times of epidemic disease outbreak, which, as I said, five years ago, even academics thought that's very odd and specific. (laughs) And then when COVID happened, um, finally, I think people sort of saw that there maybe was a use to have uh, non-medical scientists, um, scholars and other fields talking about what pandemics and epidemics do to us as as humans, right? Um, I think we all viscerally experienced in the first weeks of March, 2020, that for a while we wanted data and statistics and graphs. And after a while, months into it, we wanted to know, how do I live through this? I mean, and I don't mean biologically live. I mean, how do I emerge from this with my my sanity and my heart and my family intact? Um, You've used often the great metaphor of dumping junk drawer onto us and just showing um, pandemic having done that. I've said for years and many, many thinkers for hundreds of years have always said that pandemics and epidemics reveal only what was already broken and diseased in our cultures. Um, And I think so much of this has come, many of us adults in our working life, because not just because burnout is some hot button buzzword, but because most of us spend most of our life working, um, if you just tally up the hours. And so that's where we've seen a lot of that inflection and pressure coming out. Yeah, I agree. It's basically put a spotlight on issues that were there long before COVID-19 knocked on our doors. I wish we <laughs> would have never opened the door. It's like, uh, you know, it's, you know, someone, someone's running an election. They're, they're trying to sell us something. No, just, we'll, we'll go away. No, it didn't work yeah, out. Yeah, that way. we should have hidden. We shouldn't have opened it. Exactly. Do, yeah. <laughs> you know, borrowed one of those do not disturb door hangers from hotels like you just please pass you know don't 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 stop by we don't want it but you know, burnout has been around i've been working in the burnout space you know for several years before the pandemic and i was mistaken and i and i've shared this with people when the pandemic first started i thought okay people are going to be sent home and they're going to take stock, which is true. They've kind of, a lot of people have really reflected on, on themselves, their lives, what they do and all of that. And I thought that people would go at things at a little bit different pace than what we were before. And I was gravely mistaken on that because not only did the workloads increase for those that were still working, uh, many of us, if they had school-aged children, were full-time school teachers now too. And we discovered, if we weren't aware of it before, 
most of us tend to work during daylight hours and our children are in school during those same hours. And how do we get all of that done? The answer was we didn't. And it really caused a lot of havoc for a lot of people. And as you said, with the work you did, you know, a lot of people like, well, what kind of role is that? Well, we found out um, how critically important the work that you and your team do. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, mindful of so many things as you're talking. I mean, for instance, I don't think I spend a a lot of my life thinking about labor and career paths outside of my own personal one, but in thinking about coming on this show, it just really struck me how much that our daily grind, if you want to call it that, if that falls apart, so many other things in our household life, like our parenting and the, you know, the tours all fall apart. And in that way, the work life balance or the burnout meter is a a pretty good barometer for how society is doing. I think, Uh, how would you respond to that? I mean, you have a whole show and you work in the burnout field. It seems actually shockingly related to the nexus of every other part of our lives. It is because we think about the most consecutive hours of our day where we're awake, we tend to be in some type of labor related Mm -hmm. situation. Then there's sleep. And then there's the time before and after work that we do other things. And of course, weekends, uh, if if you work weekends or at least the days off, you know, hopefully we're not doing as much work. Uh, But what happens is because that's such a huge part of our lives, we tend to pour a lot of our, self-worth, our energy, our effort into those things. And when people are no longer working for a variety of reasons, maybe they were let go, maybe they're retired, maybe they have some illness and they're off of work for a period of time. It's stressful because we've been doing this thing this certain way. And now all of a sudden, we're not able to, or we're not doing that. And Mm -hmm. it really throws us off. And it's like going into you know, your kitchen and, you know, I'm stuck on kitchen today for some reason, but you go into your kitchen, all of a sudden, all of your drawers are completely different. Where you store things is completely different. So we're in disarray. We're, we're, we're stressed because we're trying to figure out where's the spatula, where's the, the cutting board, where's all the things we need to do to prepare except meals. It, except it's existential, right? What do I do with this time? Who's going to watch my kids at this time? Yeah, yeah. I thought of a house or a construction metaphor, too, that our job in a way, I mean, one could argue it shouldn't be this way, but it it tends to be just in terms of, like you say, how many hours we spend doing it. It is the, the scaffolding of the rest of our lives. And I thought you made a really good point in the way that what our kids are doing for nine hours a day in some ways gets to be gets to be invisible to us. Um. And I say that as a parent myself, I don't mean that in a judgmental way, but we didn't have to think about it. Teachers did. And so there was, you know, you mentioned that, you know, suddenly the medical humanities, the work that I do mattered to people for the first time. But I think many of us, and I'm a teacher myself, my husband's a teacher. And yet for the first time, I realized how much goes into keeping my children for eight hours a day. Um, I'm not somebody who doesn't appreciate teachers. I don't think I could be, but I appreciated teachers more. And and then yet I, as a teacher too, I was 
becoming more and more of a therapist for my students who were not doing well at the college level. You have kids in America, particularly, we build up university life all through high school to them. And so you had freshmen in college that were not in college, but they were in college. The the levels of psychiatric distress that professors and I think all teachers were dealing with as not trained therapists, but who were just there on the front lines trying to help these people not fall to pieces, that put its own burnout pressure. I mean, in my particular case, I started my first PhD in clinical psychology I didn't stay very long and I never wanted to be a therapist. I was always a statistician, but for me that, and then I left and became an English professor. For me, that made it very palpable that I had chosen doubly not to be a therapist that didn't feel like what I had to offer the world. And yet teachers in this time ended up uh, having to do that, whether they wanted to or not. And I think at some points, I think everybody can relate to this, that I often felt during the pandemic as it went on and on and on and on, it felt like I was a drowning person with one arm and with every stroke, I could keep myself afloat or I could hold a beloved friend, colleague, family member. I could keep them afloat for one moment. And then I could stop. Like, I think all of us experience that, that the needs upon us interpersonally outside and inside our jobs were just so much greater because of the pressures upon all of us. There were so many pressures, so many external things going on. Could we go somewhere? Could we not? What was open? What was not? Then you throw in supply chain challenges. There were things we couldn't get. And there were, you know, which, and then you now toss in inflationary costs and conflicts in Ukraine and the world. And, and it's just everything is being thrown at us. And for many people, if, there's the uncertainty and uncertainty is very stressful because we, we like to at least have at least a clue as to how things will turn out or how things will go because, you know, we like, we like comfort. We like things that are certain and we like the ability to determine what that certainty will be. And most of us in our careers have, within our control, how things will be set up, you know, where we work, when we work, all of that. And that was ripped away from so many people. And then, of course, with, you know, people leaving organizations and going into different fields, that's leaving a lot of vacancies. And there's, you know, you see all over the place now hiring signs in a variety of different sectors from everywhere. You know, there's, you know, early retirement to people just wanting to do something different. And, that just puts on extra burden and extra work for those that have not made that decision or made the decision to stay in their respective fields. And that's overwhelming them. And then they're mm. frustrated because they can't, they can't currently see, you know, a resolution or an end to what's going on. Because when you're in the moment, which is, you know, the, really what we're supposed to live is in the here and now, mm-hmm for so many of us that in the moment is not a good place for us. We're not feeling well. We're not doing well. We're struggling with all kinds of different things. And it's overwhelming for so many people, which, you know, just 
adds additional yes, stress right. and prolonged stress turns into burnout. And that's why you're seeing the, the numbers that we're seeing in so many different arenas, whether it's academia, healthcare, retail, legal, every industry, every exactly. industry. Well, and to your point, um, so I, I did write a book about COVID that's out through Simon & Schuster. It's called Quarantine Life. And call her to COVID, what pandemics teach us about parenting, work life, and communities. If I had to boil down my one overarching point about disease and what it means about all parts of our life is that none of us is an island, no matter how much we might like to think we are. And so much of what you're describing about the ripple effects of burnout and people leaving fields reveals that we, what we do affects how tolerable a job might be to the next person. And, and one person leaving adds the pressures to the people that are trying to stay and adds to the likelihood that they might therefore leave and so forth. So it, it drives home that same exact point that none of us is alone. We're all sort of, whether we want to or not, impacting the burdens that we see on one another. Um, and I think um, one thing that's been sort of almost dystopianly horrifying to those of us who are academics, I don't know if other people find it horrifying. I find it horrifying that we're seeing these same changes in academia. Um, I think I mentioned to you that typically academia and the professoriate is not really brought up when we talk about career trends and growth. And that's because the, the one sort of truth about academia for time immemorial, I mean, almost since academia existed in America as a profession uh, beginning in the 1830s, is that it was really sort of buffered from economic downshifts impacting that career field. So particularly, I think tenure gets a lot of publicity of like, if you work hard enough, you get sort of insulated from being laid off and, and those sorts of worries about your job performance or the economic performance. And so we didn't have to talk about academia. It wasn't really a part of that. And um, a, a dual factor, if if you don't mind me going on a little bit longer, is that it is so incredibly hard to become a tenure track professor. Um, we're talking, for instance, I'm an English professor, but one doesn't apply for English professor jobs. One applies for Shakespeare jobs or Victorian literature jobs or modern literature jobs. And then even within those um there's a number of jobs in my time period, Victorian era, that they might want a poetry scholar and I don't study poetry. So I apply in every English speaking and every Scandinavian speaking country in the world every year and a very good year. It's also cyclical. So you apply once a year in September. A very good year would find 15 jobs in the world for me in eight countries. So the other factor you have going into this is that it is so difficult to get a job in academia that nobody ever leaves, ever. I mean, once, once you get a job, there's likely not going to be another one in your whole life, even if you were to apply over and over. But most people are so burned out by the time they get one, burned out of the job market, that they never go back to that sort of, many people describe it as a traumatizing experience, the job market. So because of these two factors, people, it just, it was a very oddly static field. And what 
we're seeing now is um, the great resignation is applying to academia for perhaps the first time in the history of man, uh, academia being a relatively new profession um, as such. So I think most people don't, I think many academics find that sort of validating, like good, people are finally leaving because of these things that have been going on in the field for a very long time. I find it a little bit horrifying. Like it reminds me of the creepy part in a zombie movie when you, when, when the survivors enter the seemingly untouched town only to realize that everybody there committed, I don't know, uh, collective suicide or something. And that's why there's no blood on the walls because the zombies didn't get them. They got themselves where it's something seems like it's fine that this isn't really significant, but to me, um, now I'm mixing metaphors. It's a very call. The call is coming from inside the house sort of moment where you're like, Oh, that's a twist. I didn't see this is, Oh, now I'm going to mix it again. It's the canary in the coal mine. Like if it's, if it's extended this far, I find that very kind of disturbing about what it means about your average worker. And I'll just say one more thing. I know I've been talking on a bit now, but one thing I keep thinking of when you talk about it, when I think of, oh, we're all interdependent, nobody's an island. The one thing I do think that's positive about what this change might purport, you said that when the pandemic happened, you kind of thought maybe people would slow down. And in fact, we worked harder. I agree. But the good and bad thing, I think we're at this crucible here. What we've realized as laborers is that the power relies in us, that without employees, things cannot go on. And so the world doesn't function without us. And we've seen how important teachers are, grocery baggers, dare I say professors, I hope somebody thinks we're important. We've seen that anew as people leave these fields. And what I hope and wish is that the average worker would then see that as their empowerment, that they can ask for better working conditions, um, that, that without us, things fall apart. And so we can ask for more. Um, but I don't know that I've seen that really happening. It's so easy to sort of go back to the status quo, that familiar, that comfort, that I think we've ended up just being, just dealing with the greater pressures and not sort of, I don't know, having a nonviolent workers rebellion. <laughs> Although to the extent that we've seen it, I, I did predict it would not be violent. We're all too comfortable in our air conditioning and stuff for violent revolts now. But I did think if it happened, it would be the quiet opting out version, which is what we're seeing. And yet the problem with that is it's not, all-encompassing, so it just leaves more work for those who stay. And one thing before we continue, professors are critically important. Academia is critically important because you educate our future. You educate our leaders, our future leaders, the people that will be running companies, countries, initiatives, climate change, you name it. They're being educated by professors. And if professors aren't being taken care of in a way that they are healthy to continue doing the work that they dedicated their life to, because it is one of those industries, you know, years ago, people would go into one field and that's where they would stay. They would retire from there and that. We, we've seen, obviously, in, in recent times, that has dramatically changed, except for academia, because... Exactly. 
it is a dedication. It, it's like, I'm going into this for life and I'm going to, you know, educate. And, you know, we all, anybody that has been, you know, in university or college, we have those professors that we remember. We won't remember all of them, but there's going to be one or two that will, you know, something they said could have been the entire term or it could have been a simple class that we attended. They said something mm-hmm. and it, it puts something in us and we've carried that through in our own careers. And so I am a huge advocate for education because we need our leaders and our future leaders to be properly educated, to navigate through challenging times like what we faced right now. And we have seen examples where certain organizations and leaders have navigated through this as best as they could. And they did a decent job. And then there were some that, um, and you know, some circles, nah, that was a miss and I'm not going to pinpoint or point fingers or anything like that. I'll let everybody come to their own conclusions right. on that because a lot of times it's a personal opinion as well, but we, we have to, we have to take care of our, educational professionals because if we don't then who's going to show us the way and and teach us the foundation to be able to navigate through these things and you know, it's one of those things where as you said you know, with the great resignation and again it's for me it, it's still kind of a wow that's hitting academia uh, i i thought that was a a sanctity. It's like that wouldn't happen there, but that shows that, you know, the pressures of the world are not being, you know, shielded from those in the industry and it impacts people. And of course that it has a ripple effect of everything in your life, not just the work thing. If you're burned out at work, you're burned out at home, even though home may not be what's causing the stress, it amplifies everything. You know, it's if you stub your toe or you break your toe, you're limping around. It impacts everything you do, whether you're lifting, moving around, all of that. It's a toe, but it's still it throws things off and it impacts every aspect of what's going on in your life or losing a loved one or becoming a caregiver. Uh, And, you know, of course, most of us think we may end up having to do that, but sometimes people that was thrown onto them. It's like, congratulations, today you are now a caregiver. I didn't have that on my agenda today. You know, where am I going to, where am I going to squeeze that in? Well, it's like, you know, take your, take your agenda, put it in the recycle bin, go get a new agenda because things have changed. And which is stressful. Of course. Yeah. I really appreciate what, what you said. Of course I'm biased. I like when people say professors matter, but um, I, I think, you know, one interesting thing to note is that, yeah, professors have devoted their life to whatever it is they study. And that's in some ways, by definition, they have to. If they're to be the highest, uh, I don't want to say authority, but if they're supposed to be qualified to teach, you know, not just undergraduates, but maybe master's students, and they're supposed to teach anybody about whatever field they know, they have to have devoted their life to that. And they start putting into retirement much later than most people. I mean, most professors don't start paying into retirement until they're 30. So you you have this sort of lifelong love. Um, And I'm happy to share that my husband's a high school teacher and he makes more than me. I think people should know 
do not, I think media portrays us as having a lot nicer cars than we do. <laughs> um, and I, I like people to know that most professors go into it because they obsessively care about whatever it is they study um, and not for the money. Um, and so for all these reasons uh, that we've listed, both that there used to be a buffer from these sort of external economic pressures and workload pressures that you devote your whole life to something and that it's hard to get a job for all these reasons. Most professors never leave the field, especially if they get what we call the unicorn job, which is a tenure track uh, position left and right. I'm seeing people, if they're not actively leaving, they're talking about it Um, for, I mean, what we would say, no reason Of course, there's a host of reasons. As a burnout expert, you know that. But what I mean when I say no reason is nothing specific about, they're not leaving for other jobs, let's say. They're not leaving for a different professorship. They are leaving the field entirely, even if that means they're temporarily unemployed. And and also it means you'll never get back in the field. Once you leave uh, academia, you can't get back in, which is another reason people don't leave. Um, Because that feels like a huge choice. Um, And I can share from my own story right now. I temporarily have left a tenure track position and moved to Norway, moved my entire family, young children and all to Norway to take what's called a postdoctoral fellowship, which would be a bit like a, a surgeon voluntarily going back to residency. Um, it still pays. Um, But it's not done. It's very odd to go down the ladder that way, especially when I would have had um, my tenure coming up in a year um, and I've left for a two year position. I can only speak for myself and my values, but so much of it was absolute burnout. And even if this is only temporary, needing to be able to fill my own life back up and my vitality back up so I can come back and give back to my students um, who are so struggling right now. And I feel I've almost like given so much of my essence to them in just trying to buoy them up and keep them from sort of drowning under the weight of what this pandemic has done to people that I don't have anything left. Um, A lot of people have asked if I'm leaving because I don't like teaching because I work at a teaching heavy school And my answer is that I'm leaving because I love teaching and I have nothing left to give right now. And that's not good for my students and it's not good for me. And I, at least for a couple of years, have got to try to just like build up my stamina again for it. And I think from the people I know personally that are leaving, it's very similar. They love their students. They cried over leaving them. But they couldn't go on. I mean, it just, this took everything they had. And and I think all of us were all under pressure at our jobs before COVID, of course, right? You said this just highlighted and made things harder. Well, the, your self-awareness is something you don't want to shortchange because to you know, take a step back and you know, go into, you know, uh, I don't want to say going backwards because it's not that. It's it's basically, okay, I need to go in for some retooling and to revisit why I do what I do. 
And it's an, it's a, it's an important exercise. And I think everyone should do that. Doesn't matter what field they're in. Doesn't necessarily mean that they need to step away fully from their role, but in many cases, maybe they should for a period of time. Again, uh, they have to factor in all the, you know, the variance about it and cost and decision. And, you know, you you going to, you know, Norway is, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big move. And many people, you know, would not necessarily have the courage to do that. And you did. It's like, I want to do this because, and when I work with people that are burning out or teams and whatnot, I, you know, I, I always say, okay, let's, let's see if we can rekindle. It's kind of like a relationship that's struggling. And it's like, let's, let's rekindle the relationship. Let's remind what attracted you to that person or in a career thing. What, what attracted you to this field? Why did you want to do this? Uh, was it in 99.9% of the time, it wasn't about the money per se. It was, yeah, that was, you know, important, but it was the, I feel invigorated when I am in a classroom and I have however many dozens of eyeballs are staring at me and they're writing notes and they're learning something from me. That's a gift. Not everybody can educate. That's a gift. And you're knowing that, going, okay, this is important. This is important to me. And in your situation, wanting to take a step back, you didn't leave completely. You're like, because well, you could have said, bye, out of here. I'm, I'm going to go be a greeter at Walmart. See ya. And, and go. And nothing wrong with that role. Right. Um, but it's, it's uh, you know, dramatically different from being a professor. But ultimately, it boils down to, I need to rediscover me. And with all the noise and work and pressures and demands and all of that, sometimes it's like, okay, enough's enough. You know, I've been outside long enough. It's been a storm. This rain jacket is completely destroyed. I'm getting completely soaked. I need to go inside, get some shelter, dry myself off, make yourself a good cup of coffee or tea and just kind of relax and go exhale. And all right, now. What, you know, what do I want to do? And I, I tell people, you have the permission to redesign your life because it's your uh, life. And when you I, do think, that, I love the way you talk about that. Like, I think, and, and I think so often we get caught up in the binary of like, should I stay or should I go? And I think I hadn't meant to really get personal about it, but like what I've done, I do think highlights that it doesn't always have to be one or the other. Um, the example you used of retooling or rekindling it absolutely is fine to completely leave your job and completely leave your field. I sometimes maybe wish that I had the courage of people that do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But I do think to pull out that metaphor further, for anybody who's been in a long-term relationship, it's like the difference between completely calling it quits and like going to some couples counseling to say there might be a third option of saying, how could I redesign my approach to work. And and that could look different in different fields, but I'll say both my husband and I, he's a public high school teacher. We were astounded that both of our jobs were willing to give us a one to two year leave of absence and hold our positions for us. We, both of us assumed in our very different sectors, public and private, that why would any job do that right now when there's a worker shortage? But again, there's a skilled worker shortage I I think companies were more willing than we had ever thought they would be to say, like, we would like to offer you this time to go find yourself and remember that you like your job. 
So I, I would definitely encourage people to consider what that could look like for them, whether it's, is it asking for half days on Fridays or if it, is it asking for one day a week from your home office, which I think COVID did show us that even though working from home is work, sometimes there's a little bit lower pressure to interact with people differently or to just have a little bit of physical personal space that might rejuvenate you. Um, I think that this is a time that people would find even just the empowerment in making whatever that new design is would show them that they do have some ability that they're not. I don't know. I think when we feel trapped, we are stuck. We go into that fight or flight and we can't remember what we liked about our job. And so taking back like one little thing, like, can I have, you know, an hour extra on lunch breaks on Wednesdays. Like it gives you that sense of agency in your own day-to-day life that I think can make you get out of that fight or flight and remember what is positive about that. You know, these are all incredible points. And again, I think when people give themselves permission to take a step not back, but just take a step over to the side. You know, it's like instead yeah. of I'm in the game, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go on the sidelines here for a second and really do some work to make myself because we all want to do better. We want to serve. Doesn't matter what kind of role we're in, we are giving and serving others and we want to continue to do that to our best of our ability. But when we're not at our best, you know, some of us are unaware of it. They just, I'm, I'm just burned out. I'm, I'm fatigued. But some, and I, I know you have this. You recognize it's like I, I, I've given all I can give right now. So I need to go back to the reservoir, see what's there, consume it, and then take stock in where reassess. I am then and reassess. And it may be a completely sideways, different approach. It. You made me think of something so like. Neat. I'm sorry to have accidentally cut you off. Um, that you keep saying, like, let's not say backwards. And I think that was the hardest thing. Is actually, people who want to do well at their jobs, it, because they want to do well, they end up on a track of like, how do I do better and better and better? That can end up in you burning out because you've tried so hard. And because of that, we often think of any stepping sideways as a stepping backwards. And that hinders us because, for example, many, many, many people would never take a postdoc once they were a professor because it's backwards. But if you give yourself that space to actually disassociate from the ambition that you have that kind of got you to the burnout, then you could see that everything has a cost and everything has a forward and a backwards. And you know, if I keep going forward on my job, is my health going backwards, which was something that was happening to me. I have the blood pressure of a 60-year-old for no good reason. <laughs> um, and, and so these things we can say that, well, that's backwards, but we have all these different spectra of our lives that can go forwards and backwards. Sometimes we have to step off the career track spectrum to see what the other spectrums are that can be retooled, as you say, without it really being negative. I mean, for me, fundamentals of what I'm getting paid and that sort of thing didn't change. It's just the title. And so when I could let go of that thing, I was able to take care of so many other things for now and then reassess. And I think it takes that stepping outside of that 
that box to, and like you said, giving yourself permission that it's, it's not necessarily wrong to maybe take a pay cut if it gives you, I don't know, time to go hiking. That's what you're into. I am not, perhaps there are people out there that like moving outdoors and stuff. But yeah, it's giving yourself permission and not being so judgmental on the decision because it's actually a way to make yourself better. And I think we all want to do that. And it, it, when we do uh, make those adjustments and, and take time to reflect and, and see how things are working and uh, make adjustments in areas that they're not, uh, that's when we become a better version of ourselves and wash, rinse, repeat. Uh, so that's, yeah. that's, a, that's, that's important. So Kari, I've loved this conversation. Could talk to you for hours on this. So where, <laughs> where could people find out more about you, your book and, and everything else? that's going on yeah um my website has all that information kari nixon k-a-r-i nixon.com uh, um i also have twitter my handle is at half sick shadows um that's before i learned that people didn't make screen names for twitter handles but there it is and i have my book linked on both those places Awesome. And I'll definitely have that information in the show notes. So Kari, thank you again for, for sharing your story and, and the work that you're doing. I think it will, will help people that are kind of struggling with trying to make that decision to you know take a step off to the side and, and reassess. It's, yeah. it's really important work. So I really thank you for your time today and, and for sharing everything you shared today. So nice to talk with you. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of The Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.